Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, we will reveal the 2024 selections for the Talk of Iowa Book Club. You can also learn more at ipr.org slash book club. But first, the Latino Heritage Festival is the largest ethnic event in Iowa, bringing Iowans from many different backgrounds with ties to many different countries in Latin America together every September since 2002 in Des Moines. And Joe Gonzalez is the man in charge. Joe Gonzalez became an Iowan in 1957 when his family moved here from Mexico. He was one of the first Latinos to serve in the Des Moines Police Department, and he served for 42 years before becoming the director of the Latino Heritage Festival. And Joe Gonzalez is with me now. Hello, Joe. Hello, hello. Good morning. Glad to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. And we just want to get to know you this hour. So I want to go way back in time to when your family first came to Iowa. You were pretty little, right? Five years old. Five years old. All right. What do you remember about that time? You know, I remember pulling in. Actually, it was pretty cool because I remember it was like an adventure coming from Mexico to a different country. And uh, coming up by train and pulling in over at the Rock Island Depot, which is still standing right now. They kind of left it as a historical uh, site, so to speak, and they have office buildings or some offices there, but uh, it's still there. Wow. And at that point in time, in 1957, that immigration journey was a little bit easier to make than it is today for many people, right? Oh, absolutely. It was really easy to get the green card, the so-called green card, you know, to be able to come up. And we were fortunate enough to be able to do that where right now, uh, nowadays, it's just just, uh, such a difficult task. Yeah. What brought your family to Iowa? Well, just the same thing, opportunity, even back then, even though things were simpler and easier and, you know, the dollar went or even the money in Mexico went longer. A longer way. Um, it was still a better opportunity to come up to the United States. I had some family here, my godparents and an aunt and uncle and some cousins. And um, my father came up here and started working to save money to kind of get the rest of us up there, up here. And it was mother, uh, me and my two other brothers. And then there were a few more siblings to come later, right? Oh, yeah. We come from a big family. So there's seven boys. Wow. So when you were growing up in Des Moines schools, were there other Latino kids around? There were a few, but there were far and few between. There were a few, but, you know, we did, you know, I, I went to school and on the south side, uh, McKinley, and we had a few there. And then uh, Nathan Weeks, we had a few there. And then I was supposed to go to Lincoln, but I ended up going to Des Moines Technical High School, which is actually central campus. There were a few, but it wasn't like it is nowadays. Did you grow up speaking Spanish at home? Yes. You know, it's just the, the same thing that the kids are experiencing right now that are coming over as the kids have to speak Spanish at home. And and uh, that's where you hold on to your languages, you know, by kind of speaking it because your parents, you know, the parents are usually the last ones to kind of learn the language they're working. Or, you know, in my my case, my mother was a house, you know, housewife and um, never got a chance to learn it. And so you always had to speak that, you know, at home. So that also means that you probably served as the family interpreter a lot of times. 
Absolutely. You know, and I was the oldest, so I did have to get pulled out of school sometimes. And I went to take care of business at times with my mother and father, kind of a big responsibility, but you know, sometimes that's a necessity you know, in the families is to have uh, one of the family members, you know, the, you know, whether it's a son or a daughter or something to go out and be the interpreter. When you were growing up, were you aware that you were part of a, a minority community within Des Moines? Not really. When I was growing up, I didn't think of myself that that way. Um, I know that because I came from a different country, maybe that that I was, you know, from a different country. I knew that I, because I spoke Spanish and all of that, but I didn't consider myself as, as far as like a minority. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate enough to assimilate fairly decently, even at five years old. After I finally started going, you know, I started going to kindergarten. It was actually six years old because. Um, since my birthday came late in the year, then I had, you know, that it's the following year that I got to go to school and most of my English was actually learned, you know, through school. Yeah. Like, like so many immigrant children and, and of course, so many young kids also pick up the language so quickly. Was that your experience? Yeah. All kids are like sponges and, you know, when the kids come over here and it's one of those things you want to do. So any kind of, any kid that wants to learn something I mean, they're sponges. And so, you know, you get put them in the right setting and, and that happens. And that's what happened with me. I was fortunate enough, even at those times, you know, to have a, a teacher in kindergarten and, you know, uh, administrator at my, the school that, you know, tell you everything was good. And so they took their time with me and I learned it fairly quickly. Do you remember any incidents when you were growing up where you felt discriminated against because you were Latina? Not really. I don't recall really that many. I mean, there might it might have been a little bit of teasing that I kind of vaguely kind of recall, but it wasn't uh, wasn't really terrible. I think where I had it good is I was always either quiet and always smiling at people, or just plain friendly and talking, and so that kind of, that kind of took care of any kind of negativity that that might be around. Uh, there was some teasing as far as my name, because my name was Jose Gonzalez Gonzalez. Um, and so the kids didn't understand that part of it or how to say Jose, you know, you say Jose or, you know, how do you say Josie or whatever, you know, with the name, you know, and, and so that type of stuff. But uh, never really recall that, uh, I, you know, had really that many issues. Did you feel connected to the culture that you came from in Mexico? I felt connected in a way, but then a little bit disconnected because at five years old, it seems like once I remember five years old, mostly the excitement and journey, the trip getting here. Then I remember five years old before uh, when I was there in Mexico, when I left, I have a few memories of that a little bit, but more so the other way. And part of that is because of the excitement and like I said, and the adventure, the big change. What led you to become a police officer? I uh, went to Des Moines Technical High School instead of Lincoln. Lincoln was in my district. I wasn't. I was one of those kids that were kind of quiet, wasn't a follower. So I wanted to go something where a difference where I could kind of learn a trade because young people, young immigrants, more specifically, they always want to go to work right away, right? Instead of go to school or right as soon as they get out, they want to do something. I. Uh, took a class there in auto body repair. That's when they, they work on the cars, you know, when they get wrecked. Yeah. I thought that would be an animal job. 
And so I took it. And then uh, my junior year in high school, they were given a class. It was for juniors. It was an elective class. And, you know, most kids, you know, in school or high school, when you look at an elective class, you take one that's interesting or that's easy that you're going to get a good grade on. So that's what I did. And I had heard that in that class, a criminal justice class, that the students got to ride with the officers twice during that semester. I was like, oh, that'd be interesting. I took it and I kind of fell in love with it at that time because it was one of those things where service, service to community. In my mind, I felt like, you know, I came from this other country, this land this of opportunity had given me so much, you know, uh, I want to give back somehow. And I think this is the way to do it is by being a public servant. And I took the class there. My interest started there. I met some connections to the teacher who was a formal, former Des Moines police officer who still had connections with the police department. And uh, uh, there was a cadet program that had been going on at the time. Uh, it was only for a certain area of town. You had to live in that area. But soon after that, they changed it to citywide, and I was fortunate enough to apply and get on. So you had excellent timing. I mean, you were only 18 years old, right? Yes, just prior to my 19th birthday, I got on. So I, you know, I, I turned uh, 19 on November 29th, and I actually got hired in the police department on November 8th of uh, 1971 as a police cadet. Oh, wow. And you were the only Latino in your cadet class. Yes. Was, how was did that only feel? The Latino and, the, and, you know, it felt, it felt kind of different, kind of weird. By then, the pressure was on uh, because it was kind of a different kind of job, and the pressure was on that I needed to do well. Um, like I say, I had always been a shy person, uh, and but yet this is going to put you more in the forefront as far as de- dealing with public, dealing with a lot of things. And even though a cadet, police cadet, we our duties were mostly administrative, um, a lot of that type of stuff, and nothing, nothing really on the street. There were a few little things that we got to do on the street, but really minimal. And so I wanted to make sure, I guess, instill that you know I wasn't as shy dealing with public and and doing my job. When you were a cadet, what was your vision of your future? What did you want to be as a police officer? Once I got to be a police officer, once I got old enough after serving the cadet, my vision was I want to be on the street. I want to serve people. I want to serve this community. You know, and you think you, you think about it sometimes like a little bit of the excitement, um, not in a bad way. You know, nobody wants to get being involved where you're in an excited type of right, a little bit of excitement, but not too much excitement. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't want it to be the excitement where people are, you know, other people that you don't, don't know or are getting hurt, obviously that type of stuff, but you, you know, you want to be out there. And so I was looking forward to just being out there and doing any my part as far as uh, what I could, what I could do to serve my community. As time went on, what was your role in the department after after you became a full officer? You know, I served. I was on the street for quite a while, just a regular police officer. Then, after so many years, you know, you get an automatic promotion of uh, from police officer to senior police officer. All that means is that you've got a, a little bit of college and so many years in the street, which would you know puts you up a grade. Um, I hesitated during my career to uh, apply for promotions 
Uh, people kept trying to get me to do it. Finally, late in my career, they did. And I was blessed. I was lucky enough to, towards the end of my career, to get uh, promoted to sergeant and then after that to lieutenant. And, you know, I, I, I'm really proud, I guess, that I have the distinctions, but I also want somebody to break it sometime. Um, that I retired as the highest ranking Latino officer in the history of the police department as in the rank of lieutenant. Wow. Well, we're going to take a short break. We're going to talk a lot more after our break. I'm talking with Joe Gonzalez. He served with the Des Moines Police Department for 42 years before retiring as a lieutenant. Now he's the director of the Latino Heritage Festival. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in just about 15 minutes, we will reveal the 2024 selections for the Talk of Iowa Book Club. You can also learn more at IPR.org slash book club. With me right now is Joe Gonzalez. He is the director of the Latino Heritage Festival in Des Moines. It's been bringing... Many, many people together from many different backgrounds every September since 2002. It's the largest ethnic event in Iowa. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But before becoming the director of the Latino Heritage Festival, Joe Gonzalez spent 42 years serving in the Des Moines Police Department, one of the first Latinos to serve in the police department. And Joe, I want to talk about some of the work you did later in your career with the police department, because there came a time where your identity as a Latino police officer, became an important part of the work that you were doing with the founding of the Hispanic Outreach Neighborhood Resource Advocate. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, there was an assistant chief, Bill McCarthy, had a vision uh, to create this unit, um, basically because, you know, the need, because all the folks that were here, um, obviously we know the truth of the matter is that we have undocumented folks here and they were fearful of the police fearful to report crime and he realized that we needed to do something and asked me if I would uh, want to take on the role and I did and I think we started in I believe 2000 December of 2000 Um, and so it gave me an opportunity to do more of a proactive policing community policing where I was able to introduce myself in a a lot of different areas where there were businesses uh, churches apartment buildings, trailer courts, uh, areas with high concentration of uh, uh, Hispanic community where I could introduce myself and my role within the department. Well, I'm sure you found yourself working not just with undocumented immigrants, but with documented immigrants as well, people who didn't have the English skills or or maybe just felt unsafe and um, not very trustful of the police. Yes. Yes. So it was all, it was, you know, Spanish, all Spanish speakers, you know, that were, you know, because a lot of times, you know, from a lot of different countries, you know, there was no really confidence, no trust in the police departments as far as being able to have them help uh, victims out or the witnesses with crime. And so 
they were hesitant to report if they saw something or hesitant if they were a victim. And so we wanted to make sure that they knew that, you know, they, they had somebody there that was going to look out for them and they were protected and uh, they could uh, come to us to make sure that we got the report made. Now, you came to the United States when you were five years old and spoke English most of the time in school, at work, with friends, etc. When you started really focusing on this Hispanic outreach, what were your Spanish skills like? Not as good, because once you leave home, you know, Spanish is like a lot of things. It's a perishable perishable trait. Uh, Once I got married and left home, um, you start not when you don't use it, you lose it. And so I would get called out like, periodically before even this role to uh, uh, interpret. And I would have a little bit of the difficult time and to explain things, talking, because I hadn't used it enough. Well, once I got to the ONRA and that specific unit, it was constant. It was about 80% of my day was speaking Spanish. And so my skills weren't as good, but they kept getting better and better and better because you were using it a lot more. So much police work is reactive, responding to people who are in need or to dangerous situations, that kind of thing. The work you were doing with ONRA, that that sounds much more proactive. Tell me how you thought about it. I thought about it as far as being, uh, you know, like you said, it, it, it's, it's uh, proactive, informative, giving people information, giving uh, uh, people, the trust with the police department, being able to do the community policing so they could have the trust in the police department. Because most of the questions weren't so much about a lot of crime. It was just a lot of different interests in, in things that were going on in their community where they lived. They couldn't speak the language to be able to call in, you know, quality of life type of issues. And so and they knew sometimes people that were doing bad things where it was gang activity or drug activity but they didn't know if they could trust the police department and go talk to them. Well, once we built the trust, they came to us, let us know who uh, the people were that were doing these bad things. And we were able to obviously uh, root out the troublemakers, the criminals. And uh, uh, a lot of good information came from the communities because they trusted us. As you interacted more with the community, I'm sure you also began to understand a a lot more of the needs. And the Ola Center grew out of this as well. Tell me about that. There was a vision between um, the police department and some of my superiors and then a friend of mine, the county attorney, Fred Gay. uh, And and they were talking about doing something because they themselves also realized the need you know, what was going on, They were, we needed to try to have a center, uh, like kind of like a one-stop shop. And so we got together and uh, it got created and there were various agencies that were there, you know, the police department, the county attorney's office, employing family resources, visiting nurse services. Wells Fargo was instrumental in helping it get started because of monetary uh, donation. And so it was open during the week, but we, certain organizations were only there like two or three times a week, specific hours. People knew about it. It was put out on the Latino radio stations, uh, the Latino printed copy of the papers, so that if anybody had any issue and wanted to deal, you know, had to deal with any of those organizations, they could come in on those specific days and meet with us. And it really was successful. And so people felt really good. 
because they could come there if they were nervous coming to the police department. And so it was very successful on, on that line. And the Ola Center still exists in Iowa. It's been through several iterations. There have been some some funding problems. Uh, do you still have a relationship with it? Not directly, other than the last one, Sonia Reyes-Snyder, who works for the Division of Latino Affairs, wanted to kind of keep it going. She called me, you know, like a couple of years ago, and I said, uh, you know, hey, do you mind if we use the Ola Center as the same name? I said, no, nobody has any ownership rights to the center. And and the thing about it is uh, Ola, you know, people will still recognize that even from way back when. And so to me, it was okay if it can be a continuance you know, of some services, some kind of services or, or uh, some place where people can get information, you know, then I'm all for it. And so that's the only connection I have with it. I, she checks in with me periodically. Uh, Sonia does just to kind of let me know that things are kind of going going well. But I think they kind of go through the year trying to figure out how to raise money to keep it, to keep sure. it going. During all of this time when you were serving on the police force, you're also raising a family in Des Moines. Tell me a little bit about your family. Well, I uh, I have uh, three daughters and uh, and two boys, and so it was kind of a challenge, you know, because of all the hours and everything. And once I, uh, you know, I was working on the police department itself on the streets. You know, I was working midnights, and I did that for a long time, and you know, different shifts. But fourteen years were like working ten thirty at night those. 6.30 in the morning, so that was kind of rough for family life. And then uh, once I started working on rep, there were a lot of meetings in the evenings and the weekends, and so that took you away a lot. So it was challenging. Um, and in police work, you know, there's a very, very high divorce rate, and unfortunately I was one of those that uh, um, numbers, I guess, you know, because it's just the, the – the job and pulling away from family and um, that does it to you. But um, in the long run, I mean, it was still rewarding to me to serve in the police department. And uh, I, later on in life, I, I got a chance to kind of make it up to my family as far as, Hey, you know, I missed out on a lot of your things, but now we're going to do a lot of things together. Um, and with the grandkids, I do a lot more than I did probably do with the kids just because it's my way to show that, Hey, I wasn't able to give you guys, you know, you girls, uh, you boys as much time, but now I, I can a lot more with the grandkids. Yeah. A, a lot of grandparents are in that position for sure. Yes. Um, so when you were growing up in Des Moines, you were one of few Latinos. The The Latino population in Iowa has grown dramatically since you were a child. Do you reflect on how maybe things were different for your kids because of that? Yeah, um, yeah, I I do. I I think about it a little bit because, you know, it was kind of uh, my kids probably had a little bit more difficulty with it because they wanted to learn the language. I failed them because I was always so busy and I didn't stress the importance. Yes, I want you to learn the Spanish language. Let's figure out how we can do this. Um, And so they kind of lost out. And so. Nowadays, when I, you know, I see the same thing with parents and their kids, you know, the kids come and want to be assimilated so much, and then they don't want to learn the English. Well, in reverse, it's kind of like, you know, hey, here I could have taught my kids the Spanish, and that would have really, 
you know, been beneficial for them because, you know, speaking two, lang- two languages, especially Spanish, would have been something really, really good for them. And they went through hard times because people with the name thought, okay, you speak Spanish. So, and so they felt bad that they didn't. And so, you know, it's one of those things that I can't ever take back, but I can at least moving forward make sure I tell parents and all kids, you know, that I run into that, you know, it's important to hold on to it and it's important to have those two languages. Your work as a police officer was cut short by a terrible accident. You you weren't um, actively working as a police officer at the time, but you were working at a, a second job doing security um, for the World Food Prize. Tell me just briefly what happened. I was, uh, you know, working. They had an open house, you know, at World Food Prize building, which is the old library downtown. Everybody knows that building. And uh, I, at the end of the shift, I was getting ready to leave, and uh, there was a driveway where they use actually as the driveway for people to come down that are handicapped because that's the only way you can get in to get, use the elevator. A truck had already parked there; it shouldn't have been there, and I didn't think it was going to be any big deal when they had backed it up. I thought they were done. I waved at the guy that was flagging them in because I needed to get through there. I started. I thought he waved me through. I started walking between the the truck and the <clears throat> granite wall, and the truck started moving. And so it basically pinched me. It didn't like crush me from behind. It pinched me uh, right up against the wall, oh. and I immediately. I mean, I couldn't breathe because my lungs collapsed. I had uh, thirteen broken ribs and some uh, internal injuries, and so it was kind of a scary moment to me. And it actually was one of those moments where time stood still, and I thought about my whole life right there and what I was going to miss out with my kids and grandkids. And then luckily somebody saw me, the passenger in the truck happened to look out and they stopped. Wow. And I know there's a, a lot more to that story, a very long recuperation time. And, and eventually you did have to retire with disability from the police force. I'm so glad that you're you're doing much better now, although things are still rough sometimes. They are. You know, I just kind of like a lot of discomfort. You know, I'm kind of like a uh, weather barometer because when the weather changes, I can feel it. But yeah. Just, just blessed to be here. So... These days, you are the director of the Latino Heritage Festival. You are, I think, the perfect person to lead the Latino Heritage Festival. Uh, tell me how that happened. I was on the board from the beginning, um, and so I already knew about it. And then uh, my predecessor, Joanne Mackey, was getting ready to retire during the time that I was getting ready to retire with my disability at the police department. And my, the board are the ones that said, hey, we want Joe to be the director. And so they kind of basically told me I was going to be the director. Oh, wow. And so you didn't, didn't have a choice that. in the matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it, but, but I was glad that I did it, you know, because I had already been with it. However, there's a big difference between being a board member and being the director and all the different, uh, details and everything that you have to do for logistics. But, uh, uh I was able to work with her the, a year for, for almost a year, half a year, I should say, uh, before I took it over so that I'd learn, learn the whole thing. Wow. So this is the largest ethnic event in Iowa. 
the Latino population in Iowa has grown so much over the years. Young people in the Latino population, uh, that part of the population is is growing even faster. Uh, Tell me a little bit about how you think about your work with the Latino Heritage Festival, bringing so many people together and giving them an opportunity to really be proud of their cultural heritage. You know, it's an honor and it's a privilege, but it's also challenging because we want to represent as many of the countries as we can. And we know that we have uh, representatives of the, most of those countries in central Iowa. However, trying to make sure that we recruit them and use them at the festival to represent countries in the cultural area, uh, uh, food vendors to make sure they have the, the variances. Same thing with the music, because it's not just about things from Mexico. It's easy to get things from Mexico. It's just challenging with the other parts. So uh, we want to make sure that the folks from the different countries, when they come to our, our festival, don't think that we're just highlighting Mexico, that we're highlighting a lot of other countries. And we've done really, really well over the years. And so we continue to do that. And then our festival is a place for them to come so they can show their pride in their traditions, their culture, their heritage. And then uh, the second part of that is to educate the greater community on how diverse we are, you know, as a culture that it's just not Mexico, it's all the other countries. And so, you know, if you hear somebody speak in Spanish, don't just say, oh, you speak Spanish, you're from Mexico, what part of Mexico are you from? It should be like, oh, you speak Spanish, what country are you from? Because we have a lot of folks from, you know, all over from from Central America, from South America and from the Caribbean that are living in in central Iowa. The Latino Heritage Festival takes place in September. And of course, it's not just for Latino Iowans, but for everyone who wants to come and, and learn and celebrate and dance and eat and all of those good things. What do you want people to know about it? That, it, it is for everybody. I'm glad you just mentioned that because sometimes people hear that Latino festival. I think oh, it's just a Latino festival. We have done a fairly decent job of getting from people from all walks of life to come and learn, enjoy. What better way to learn from each other than through music, food, dance, culture, right? And so it's a great opportunity, and it's a family event. What we really stress in our communities is family. It's all about family, and so everything that we have there, you know, we have for family. We have uh, extensive area for kids so that you can bring the kids and they can enjoy uh, a, a big area of fun activities. And then as an adult, you can enjoy your things too. And so um, you want, want everybody to know that it's just a fun, fun learning experience. Well, Joe, thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh, you're so welcome. I am so appreciative and honored to be on, on the show. Joe Gonzalez, he first became an Iowan back in 1957 when his family moved here from Mexico. He served for 42 years on the Des Moines Police Department and retired as a lieutenant from the force. He is now the director of the Latino Heritage Festival, which is the largest ethnic event in Iowa. You can find out more at latinoheritagefestival.org. Coming up in just a moment on Talk of Iowa, we are going to reveal the 2024 selections for the Talk of Iowa book club. You can also find out more at ipr.org slash book club. This is Talk of Iowa. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. 2024 is already underway, and it is time now to reveal the 2024 selections for the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Our final 2023 book club conversation about Fun Home by Allison Bechdel, featuring Allison Bechdel, aired last month. And of course, you can listen to any of our previous book club conversations on our podcast. You can find them all on iowapublicradio.org slash book club. And you can also join our growing community on Facebook. Search for IPR's Talk of Iowa Book Club. But as I said, it is time to look ahead and reveal the Talk of Iowa Book Club list for 2024. Caitlin Troutman is an IPR talk show producer, a voracious reader, and my chief collaborator for the book club. Welcome, Caitlin. Hey, Charity. Nice to see you on this side of the mic. Right? (laughs) So we are going to read six books again this year. Just like we did last year, we're going to have an on-air book club every other month starting in February. And Caitlin and I have put our heads together. I think we've come up with a list that we're both very excited about. Absolutely. And we are going to kick things off in February, on February 20th, with a book that I think a lot of people are reading for the first time or rereading because... A movie version just came out, and that's The Color Purple by Alice Walker. It won the Pulitzer Prize back in 1983, and you may already know this, but it tells the story of Celie. She grew up very poor in rural Georgia in the early part of the 20th century, and the book is told largely through letters, first from Celie to God, and then later from Celie to her younger sister, Nettie. And we see her struggle and grow. We see her live through having an abusive father. We see her deal with the racist and sexist culture that she's part of. We see her deal with an abusive marriage. But we also see her learn about herself and grow and form some incredible relationships and do some amazing things as well. So it's a it's it can be a tough read at times, I feel, but it it's also uplifting as well. I think the movie may be a little more uplifting <laughs> than the book, but the book is just extraordinary. Yeah. The movie's a musical, so you need something to sing about, right? Right, but, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, the first time I read the book, I, I didn't read it back in the eighties or even the nineties. Uh, I read it in the early two thousands and I thought, what have I been doing with my time? Why mm. haven't I read this book? So maybe if you're in the same <laughs> camp, this is your moment to read this extraordinary book. It it just is really fantastic. Yeah, this will be a first read for me, so I'll let you know. Um, nice. And if if I don't feel that way, it'll be your fault. So that'll be fun. <laughs> it, <clears throat> it will be your fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, so that's in February, The Color Purple by Alice Walker. It's no one's fault. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about April. Absolutely. So in April, we are reading The Seed Keeper by Diane Wilson. And that's a novel. This is a novel, yes. It's the 2024 All Iowa Reads pick for adults. Every year, you know this, the Iowa Center for the Book chooses a couple of different titles. It's They have the goal of fostering unity through reading, which I think is also a goal of this book club. Absolutely. So it's a really perfect fit. And it's just this really thoughtful way for Iowans to come together and read and talk about what a book means to them. So The Seed Keeper follows a Dakota family. It's over multiple generations. Um, It goes back and forth in time from 
the 1800s up to the early 2000s. It's largely told from the perspective of Rosalie Ironwing. She's a young indigenous woman, grew up in rural Minnesota. So I know that's part of the reason they chose it for all Iowa reads is there is that Midwestern connection there. Um, And then after her father dies, though, she is placed in foster care. And I think we all have heard at least uh, on the peripheral about some of the issues with foster care and indigenous people. So that uh, is kind of the setup. And as she grows up, she learns that she really loves to garden. And so this book explores the relationships between the land, the environment, and the Dakota people as well. Um, I think last year for this book club, well, I know we read <laughs> Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, which was this really beautiful nonfiction book that focused on the environment, on botany. It was also by an indigenous author. But this is a work of fiction. I think it'll also touch on a lot of the same issues. There will be some overlap. But since it is fiction and it's more plot driven, I think it's just a different way yeah. to understand like what's at stake here. I'm excited about it because this is going to be a first time read for both of us. Yeah. But also I'll, Iowa Reads has not let me down yet. <laughs> so we've run some we read some really great books because of the All Iowa Reads program. Oh, yeah. It's also this is a publication of Birchbark Press, which is Louise Erdrich's press in Minnesota. So I'm excited about that as well. But so this The Seed Keeper by Diane Wilson. We are reading that for April. There will also be all Iowa Reads events, including Diane Wilson, this coming year, but they haven't been announced yet. So hopefully we'll be able to uh, talk with her. Very exciting things on the horizon, though. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about June now. And we've picked a book for June that is nonfiction, but it's also a young adult book. That's right. So our June pick is Solito by Javier Zamora. Um, It's about, it's a memoir actually, and it's about Zamora's trip, that's what he calls it, from El Salvador to the United States in the late 90s when he was only nine years old. He is going to the U.S. to be reunited with his parents. He hasn't seen them in years. He doesn't even remember his father. Uh, He's leaving behind his grandparents who raised him. He's never left El Salvador before. So this is a very new and scary thing on its own. But adding on to it, he is undocumented. So it is a really arduous journey here. Um, And I think something I really appreciated about this is obviously immigration is very politicized. And that is a that can be like the way we think of it pretty instantly. But this is told from the point of view of a nine-year-old. So once in a while, he'll say something about his favorite cartoons. He'll say something about wanting to go to the zoo, something like that. And it's kind of alarming. It's uh, the way you're reminded that this is a child doing this, making this really um, intense journey. Um, And since reading this, I learned that Zamora himself is a poet, and that makes a lot of sense now because the sensory details he includes are so wonderful. Um, It is a very heavy read. I actually listened to the audiobook, and I would kind of stop and sit with it for a little while. But it's also got some really funny moments, and it is a hopeful story. So I'm very excited to read it with our listeners. And we are reading that in June teenagers should be out of school in June. So I'm hoping that not only will adult readers really enjoy this and learn from it, but hopefully we'll get some younger readers to join us as well. That would be cool. Yeah. And I'd love to hear their thoughts as well, being closer to that age. So 
And we actually divided our list. We have three novels this year, and we have three memoirs this year. So we're we're a little memoir heavier than usual, but we are very excited about the memoir we're reading in August. That's right. And this one was actually a choice by Studio One's Lindsay Moon. She's obviously Studio One. She's a music lover. She's also a big nonfiction reader. So we, I really trust her judgment when it comes to these things. We are reading Don't Tell Anyone the Secrets I Told You, by Lucinda Williams. I love Lucinda Williams. I love her music. She is this space kind of between rock and country music that is very gritty and wonderful. Her lyrics, she has this really like tough persona, but she's also very vulnerable. So she has this really amazing balance, I think. Um, And I think (laughs) there were times when music executives just didn't know what to do with her because of that, because she kind of occupies these different spaces and is hard to classify. Um, But this is how she became the songwriter, how she became the Lucinda Williams we know. So she writes about growing up in the Deep South. Her father had numerous jobs while she was growing up. So before she was 18, she had moved 12 times. So she talks about moving her mother had mental illness and was in and out of the hospital. And when she was only one years old, Lucinda Williams had an emergency tracheotomy. So really, really uh, surprising (laughs) surprising start to a singer-songwriter's life, I think. But uh, then before she kind of found mainstream success, she goes on, she works these odd jobs, she plays gigs at high schools and colleges. And then she finds mainstream success and becomes Lucinda Williams. Uh, So I'm really looking forward to reading her prose since I'm such a fan of her lyrics and I love watching interviews with her. Um, And I'm interested in hearing about the woman behind the music. And we will be coordinating with IPR's Studio One in some ways that we will reveal later once things are actually on the schedule. That's right. We'll have more details later this year. We will. But they're exciting details. Very exciting details. All right. Let's talk about October. And we're going to read another young adult book. This one's a young adult novel. And it's Eleanor and Park by Rainbow Rowell. And Rainbow Rowell lives in Nebraska. But she did live in Iowa. She started her career as a journalist and and spent time living in Iowa. I'm a huge fan of her work. I've read she she writes for young adults, she writes for adults. She's done some fantasy. She writes good stuff. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah. I, she's done comic books as well. Um so I haven't read all of her work, but <laughs> I trust. I trust that it's all good. But Eleanor and Park, it is a young adult novel and it takes us back to 1986 in Omaha, Nebraska which, of course, was my childhood. So maybe this book resonated even more deeply (laughs) for me and for many members of Gen X than it it might for the young people who might pick it up. But uh, Eleanor and Park are both 16 years old, and they are both misfits in their high school. They just don't fit in, but they don't fit in for very different reasons. And yet they are thrown together in that place where all students come together at some time or another, the bus. And uh, they end up becoming friends. They connect through comic books and mixtapes, and they do eventually fall in love. And that all sounds maybe like Sweet Valley High, a stereotypical kind of YA romance, but it's not. I mean, the challenges that both of them face are complex, they're real, And it's just a deeply moving 
novel that brings up a lot of questions and and a lot of scenarios that young people have to go through, young people living in poverty, living in abusive families, dealing with racism, dealing with not fitting in. So I'm excited about reading that. It is during the school year, but I hope we can get some <laughs> some young people to join us on that one as yeah. well. And that's one I actually have read as well. And I totally agree with everything you said about Rainbow Rowell. Uh, I think she has this gift for capturing the way teenagers think about things. I read this when I was a teenager, I should say. And uh, kind of capturing that angst without ever feeling uh, pedantic, condescending, which I think sometimes adults can fall into. So it is just a really, really wonderful read. I'm excited to revisit it. Yeah, this is a book that I read with my daughter when she was a teenager. Oh, wow. So that was that was just a really wonderful experience. Although, it's not an it's not all super uplifting and she cried a lot of tears and said how could you how could you make me read this but that's the sign of a great book though it is it, it is. is she loved it and she has recommended it to friends so wonderful um and then i already mentioned that we've got three memoirs that's right we are going to end the year with a memoir as well. And this is by Joseph Giha, who taught at Iowa State University for many years. He's still, he's retired, but he's still teaching cooking classes <laughs> from time to time in Ames. Uh, the book is called Kitchen Arabic, How My Family Came to America and the Recipes We Brought With Us. You may have heard I interviewed him when the book came out. So you may have heard that conversation, but it's the story of his family. In 1946, that's when Joe came to the United States with his family from Beirut, Lebanon. They ended up in Toledo, Ohio. But his father had come to the United States many years before that and had built a life in the United States and then ended up going back to Lebanon and then starting over again. Mm. So basically, he had two families. And it is such a fascinating story. It, it's, it's just exciting and interesting to read. But it also, of course, underlines the fact that we are a nation of immigrants. And it's important to remember that, you know, there are, were Lebanese people here at in the early part of the 20th century in the Midwest in places where we may not remember <laughs> that they were here and building lives and building businesses and impacting the culture. And am I remembering correctly that um, it is a memoir, but it also has some recipes. You for... are remembering correctly. I so. am so excited about this. I just, the, the what we can learn about a culture from the food, just to have that in addition to the wonderful writing of Joseph Giha. I think it's it's really exciting. It is exciting. And it's it's a lot of fun. The book, you know, it's December. It's a time when a lot of people are really busy. So the story part, the memoir part of the book is really a short and quick read. But you may find yourself deciding to shake things up at some of your holiday gatherings. <laughs> You might get very inspired by some of Joe's recipes. So um, that is Kitchen Arabic, How My Family Came to America and the Recipes We Brought With Us by Joseph Giha. He is emeritus uh, professor of creative writing at Iowa State University. And let's go back through the list one more time. You want to start us off with February? Sure. So in February, we are reading The Color Purple by Alice Walker, coinciding with the movie that just came out. 
in April, The Seed Keeper, a novel by Diane Wilson, which is the All Iowa Reads selection for 2024. June, we're reading the memoir Salito by Javier Zamora. Which is also a young adult. A young adult book. memoir, yes. So hopefully a lot of readers will join us on that one. And then in August, we are doing something we've never done before. We are reading a music memoir, Don't Tell Anyone the Secrets I Told You by Lucinda Williams. And we will be coordinating with IPR Studio One. In October, we're reading the YA novel Eleanor and Park by Rainbow Rowell. And then, again, in December, Kitchen Arabic, How My Family Came to America, and The Recipes We Brought With Us by Joseph Giha. Caitlin Troutman is my collaborator on the Talk of Iowa Book Club. You can find a list of all of these selections at ipr.org slash book club. And you can also join us on Facebook. Just search for IPR's Talk of Iowa Book Club and join the fun. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Caitlin Troutman, Samantha McIntosh, and Danny Gear. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa. I take off my wall.